0: Welcome to this week's edition of Spin Cycle, which I've dubbed, if anything, it all just keeps getting worse. Um, Spin Cycle is a show that tries to unweave the knot of the 24-hour news cycle and get to the stories behind the stories, and uh, we have our work cut out for us this week, I I think it's fair to say um in a little while we're going to be chatting to um, professor Dennis Muller. Oh sorry before i get into that obviously we are broadcasting as ever from the unceded lands of the wandery people of the Kulin Nation. Um as ever i hope it's implied that this show expresses its solidarity with First Nations people but um uh, even more strictly than normal i think we are we are really hoping that anyone who's listening is is feeling okay in the in the kind of The situation that we find ourselves in. Um, In a little while, we're going to be talking to Professor Dennis Muller, the Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, to talk through his work on the performance of the mainstream media during the voice debate, which I assume is going to be 10 on 10s, A pluses (laughs) across the board. Um, Jess Lilly has quite rightly in my view boiled her phone and skipped the country (laughs) and I think is somewhere draining a certain part of paradise of its yuzu margaritas and we can only wish her well. (laughs) Jess you
1: better not be listening to this right now. (laughs) Yeah
0: yeah yeah but we can only wish her well in in that endeavour but I am joined um, by the contributing editor of the monthly the wonderful Rachel Withers. Rachel how are you doing? (laughs)
1: As well as I can be at this stage, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm glad to be here to have a chance to talk through some of some of what we've been seeing over the past, yes. you know, months
0: and week. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose, I mean, I, I obviously I'm, I'm coming back from a little break of my own. So I, I was able to sort of uh, dodge a few of the harder conversations that we had to have about this. But I mean... You've talked about, and we're going to get a bit more into this with our, with our guest, uh, Professor Muller, um, in a few minutes, but um, you've written a lot about the, the coverage in the aftermath of the uh, debate and how the kind of vote broke down. Um, again, what did you conclude? I'm assuming it was all pretty above board.
1: <laughs> I mean, look, I have been really closely following all the different analysis um, from the the data nerds, your, your Anthony mm. Greens and your Casey Briggs, um, at, from the ABC, Nick Everton at the Guardian. Um, I am not a data journalist, but I love data journalism. And I, and I, I'm also a big nerd for, um, electoral results. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, um, I, I, once went home from a, a date when I saw that the Aston by-election results were interesting <laughs> so that I could watch the Aston by-election results come in. But, um, yeah, we'll get to
0: that later. I'm sure. <laughs>
1: but... I mean, it, it's been it's been really fascinating um, looking at all these pieces, breaking down the vote. Obviously, the referendum failed in every state in Australia. Yeah. Uh, it got up in the, the ACT, didn't count towards the uh, double majority anyway. But um, yeah, when you actually break down the data and look at individual electorates, uh, which ones voted yes, and then even more on the more granular level, the individual booths mm-hmm. that voted yes. Um, and I think very quickly uh, how different areas of the country voted became a point of contention in the media. Yes. Um, because you can look at the numbers, you can look at the booths, um, you can look at the, the overall percentage for the state. Um, but basically what I found quite frustrating in the coverage, um, you know, it was immediately apparent you know, the the very next morning that um, some of the most remote parts of the country actually voted yes. Um, So while the Northern Territory was a no overall, uh, the remote Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory, which had remote polling teams, so the AAC sent out, uh, you know, uh staff to conduct the election in these remote places um and those booths overwhelmingly voted yes and you can look at the you can look at uh, across um you know central australia or across cape york and see the individual areas um Places like Palm Island and, and Mornington Island, mm-hmm. uh, places with, you know, 90% Indigenous population, overwhelmingly, Overwhelming. mm-hmm. which, of course, goes against the narrative that the media well,
0: was feeding. I, I've got a, I've got a headline to put to you, oh, Rachel, yes? because you say that, but in our national broadsheet, uh, the Australians, our as it broke down
1: broadsheet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> our only national broadsheet. Um, when they broke down the voting patterns of the weekend's referendum, they they headed that piece with elites against battlers of the great divide.
1: Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. I yeah. Look, there is a divide in the results in terms of how the inner cities and the suburbs voted. There's mm-hmm. a, it's quite a stark difference. You watch the um, the the colouring on these maps change as you get away from <laughs> the inner cities, mm-hmm. but then when you get to um, the centre of Australia, it starts to change colour again. Um, and I think it's just so interesting the way the media can take numbers and spin them in different ways. I mean, very quickly, we saw oh, the Northern Territory voted no, mm-hmm. you know, so Indigenous people didn't want this. And um, I guess others said, well, look, um, if you look at the booths, They voted yes. But then you had people like um, Sky News pointing out that, well, actually, um, every electorate in the country, that the top five electorates in the country, sorry, that had the highest Indigenous population all voted no. Mm. And it's like, okay, well, what percentage of those electorates... um because nowhere in the yeah. no electorate in the country has more than fifty percent indigenous yeah, population. Yeah, yeah. And so you did have to look on a booth level. And if you looked on the booth level, it was pretty clear that people in remote communities voted yes. But mm. depending how you choose to break it down, um you'll get a totally different result. We saw um there was a piece, you know, a bit of a bit of media and media criticism. Um the New York Times did a piece on the results of the referendum. Yes. As much of the international media did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, was it good for us? Um <laughs> And New York Times basically suggested that Australia had crushed Indigenous dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, James Morrow
0: <laughs> James at the Herald Sun was that. not
1: happy with being lectured by the New York Times. Mm. Uh, mind you,
0: where the is... reporter
1: was a, a, an Australian reporter based in Sydney. Like <laughs> and the...
0: where is James Morrow from again?
1: <laughs> <laughs> is
0: he British? <laughs> He's American.
1: He's American. <laughs> I always forget. <laughs> um, Jesus, James. <laughs> um, but he he then pointed out that actually every electorate with a more than 5% Indigenous population voted no. And it's like, Mm. well, what does that mean? (laughs) Like Mm. what does a a 5% population, how would that swing the the result? All you have to do is look at the individual booths. But, mm. you know, as usual, the media will do, individual media outlets will do, whatever they want to do mm. to push their particular narrative.
0: Yeah. And and one point that um we, we had um William Bowe, the uh, sophologist writing in Crikey um the other day, who sort of exploded that myth about the mm. the idea that um that somehow you could Get the temperature of indigenous communities based on electorates where they were high, of a higher level than in other places. Um, but he did say that there are like there are within that there are there are questions about say voter turnout and things mm-hmm. like that about like well how much did this actually uh, like ignite the fires of, of of indigenous voters and that that's a that's a worthwhile area of that's something that the numbers you could use to Absolutely, have a look at but, but that that's is not, there's not no, there's where the news corp went
1: with this no they mm-hmm. went for. The Northern Territory voted no, yeah, and yeah. you know there was there was a piece about um, even after this, even after it was proven that um, you know, quote unquote, I, I don't want to say you know real Indigenous Australians. But that's what we were getting from mm. News Corp the whole way through was that Jac- Jacinta Price spoke for the real Indigenous Australians, not these elites like not obvious and
0: a career activist types.
1: Um, and it's so a part of this narrative that's been built up around her mm. and it was just completely obliterated on Saturday night if you actually looked at the numbers. And yet this week we have once again seen the Australian running puff pieces on Jacinta Price. Um, Voice of one- her people.
0: Voice the of her people
1: yeah. was the headline, um, and it was a profile of her parents, sort of saying how she speaks for her people, and it's just flat out ignoring the actual results. For all this time, we had we had, you know, no one could actually say how Indigenous voters felt in the lead up to the referendum because yeah. you know, until we had the results, we couldn't.
0: Yeah, and, and, and it was and the
1: eighty percent figure from some polling, but yeah, that was which was, which
0: was which is relatively old, and and they are it's 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 it's, it's um notoriously a hard demographic to poll accurately for various reasons. Um, sorry, I've interrupted you. No, that no, you that's going.
1: fine. I mean, it, it just, it, we didn't, yeah, we, we couldn't be sure if this 80%. It was believed that it was pretty high support. Yeah. But, you know, ultimately it was, it was various people trying to speak for different communities. And now that we have results, um, low turnout, absolutely mm. an issue, but we have some results and News Corp is still trying to misrepresent them.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: and, and, and I mean this was all about giving people a voice, and um, they've taken the voice, and they've uh, then taken away their their vote and refused to admit.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, and there's of course the other the other democ- the other sort of idea now is that somehow the indigenous people who did vote for it were were corralled by oh. AEC figures, which again is a very very dangerous step and one that I didn't think we would see quite so soon in Australia, the idea of um, kind of electoral fraud. But I think, again...
1: I mean, I absolutely expected to see claims of electoral fraud if somehow, yes, had gotten up. Yeah. Based yeah. on the kind of campaign we saw from No, um, you know, questioning the AAC, yeah, talking about yeah, ticks yeah. and crosses, telling voters to bring a pen. Mm. Um, I absolutely expected Trumpian sort of stop the steal mm. things. But what what is so shocking about this is they won, and yet they're still arguing enough. that there was some kind of manipulation of these Indigenous booths in the Northern Territory.
2: Three, three triple... ..ah... Triple, triple. Uh.
0: We are now joined by Dennis Muller. Dennis Muller was a journalist for 27 years, um, including as an assistant editor at the Sydney Morning Herald and associate editor at The Age. He is now a leading expert on media ethics, um, teaching media ethics uh, for the Master of Journalism at Melbourne University, um, is the author of Media Ethics and Disasters and Journalism Ethics for the Digital Age. Uh, He's an honorary fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism um, at the University of Melbourne. Uh, I think he's a certified friend of the show by this stage and we are delighted to have him back. Professor Muller, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Uh, not Professor, just Doctor Aldo. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> your, your, uh, your, your commitment to getting facts out there is as ever undimmed. Um, so you wrote a piece in the aftermath of the the, uh, the voice referendum results... Which uh, was headlined, how did the media perform on the voice referendum? Let's talk about truth-telling and impartiality. Um, There's so much to get into with this piece. uh, But you open with the observation, the rules by which politics are conducted have changed dramatically, especially since the rise of Trumpism. Yet the professional mass media continue to cover politics in ways that are no longer fit for purpose. So I guess the first question is, is... Australia's media in particular, stuck in a pre-2016 understanding of of how we cover politics?
2: I think to a large extent they are, yes. Uh, And it's understandable. I mean, these sort of conventions by which we cover politics have been in place for a very long time. Um, You know, the basic idea is that we uh, we try to get both sides of the story or all sides of the story um, on the assumption that we're basically working with truthful facts. Um, And in the past, that's basically been the way in which politics has operated. Of course, there have always been exaggerations and so on. But outright lies um, uh, have been rare in public life. Um, And so the media has been able to proceed on the basis of the sort of starting point Is basically correct and then you report this and you get other perspectives on it and so on. Well, Trumpism has changed all that. Uh, Trumpism means that we can't any longer assume that the facts of which we're proceeding are in fact true. Um, And so it's it's now got to the point where the media um, need to take stock and say, well, What can we do about this? Um, We can no longer make this assumption that we're operating on facts that are true. So we need to be on our toes to make sure we are not amplifying lies um, and treating them as if they're true, uh, and only discovering later that they're not, by which time, of course, the lie has taken root, it's been picked up on social media. Um, and it's been amplified even further. So that's the fundamental problem.
0: And I suppose for for any of our listeners who have perhaps been kinder to themselves than than Rachel and I, and and probably you have too, and maybe not bathed their brains in in some of the the muckiness of this campaign, I mean, let's talk about some of the actual demonstrable falsehoods that you discuss uh, in your article.
2: Well, I think the most outrageous of them was uh, Peter Dutton's assertion that the Australian Electoral Commission was rigging the result. Mm. Mm. Now, you might remember that the basis for that was that the Electoral Commission had said it would accept ticks as an indicator of a yes vote, but would not accept crosses as an indicator of a no vote. And the reason is this, that a cross is used uh, in, in our society very widely merely as an indicator. It doesn't indicate... Uh, yes or no, and that proposition has been tested by the courts and is found to be sound. So uh, since 1988, the Electoral Commission has been accepting ticks as yes uh, but not accepting crosses as no. That was the basis upon which Dutton then said that the Electoral Commission was rigging the result, which was an outrageous thing to say. I mean, the Electoral Commission runs one of the most honest um, and impregnable electoral systems in the world. It's globally recognized for the excellence of its work. And for the leader of the opposition to consciously deliberately sent out to undermine public confidence in the electoral process was a disgrace. And it was not the kind of thing that uh, I think any political leader in Australia in the past would have said, and if he or she had it would have finished them off. I mean, their own party would have repudiated them, much less the public at large. So in this case, of course, it just went on by as if, as if it was the most um, harmless remark of any.
0: Yeah, uh, a little uh, plug for Crikey. We did point out that his on his declaration of qualification for parliament, um, Peter Dutton uses crosses to indicate yes quite a few times. <laughs> um, yeah.
2: That's a very good point. I like it. (laughs) Um,
1: Dennis, I was wondering, um, how much do you think... I mean, we've seen a reckoning in in the last couple of weeks of the campaign, Uh, maybe not a widespread reckoning yet, Um, perhaps more and more media outlets calling it out, more and more commentators. Um, How open do you think the mainstream media is to... Hearing about this problem and acknowledging that there is a problem.
2: Look, I think they're open to it, but I, I don't think they've got their heads around what to do about it. That, that was really why I read this mm-hmm. article. I, I, you know, I speak as a former newspaper executive, um, a former chief sub-editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, news editor of that paper, associate editor of the Age. So I've had a lot of experience in in making assessments about about news and managing newsrooms. And and it's a difficult job. I mean, you're particularly now far harder than it was when I was in newspapers because you've got now this unending stream of material. It's not just 24 seven. I mean, it's every minute of every day and every day of every week. Uh, to try to keep up with, and you've got uh, perpetual, repeated deadlines to meet. We had one deadline per day when I was on the age at about 8 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. There were about five deadlines during the day now. I mean, mm-hmm. the speed of these things uh, ha- has has accelerated enormously. And I think that And when you're doing that kind of job, you are flat out actually doing it day by day. It's very difficult to step back and to reflect on actually how you're doing it and what you might do differently. So I think they'd be open to it. But I don't think they've been able to draw breath long enough to think about how they might respond. And so my my purpose really in writing this piece was to draw attention to this problem and to suggest some ways in which they might respond.
0: Is, is there is that kind of... Is that the, the key difference? I mean, the, the idea of the... Um the, the kind of call to objectivity um, and neutrality in reporting has been a blind spot for a while. I mean, I, remember a, I believe it's a Christopher Hitchens quote talking about the coverage that Ronald Reagan enjoyed when he was president of the United States, where he would say, well, the newspapers are allowed to say without any controversy that he's a great communicator, but to call him a liar is to kind of cross a line that journalists aren't allowed to do, even though a, to call him a great communicator is, is a value judgment and a, a matter of opinion, whereas the fact that he's a liar is a demonstrable fact. Um, is the... is, the, is Are these blind spots just accelerated and amplified by the fact that now misinformation can travel so much quicker and can reach so many more people so much quicker than than it could previously?
2: Oh, absolutely it is. And it's allied to another problem you've just identified. Um, The tendency in some media, uh, not in all by any means, but in some media to mix up uh, opinion and news reportage. Mm. Now. Some organizations, in particular The Guardian, have extremely strict separations between news and opinion, always have had since the 19th century. Um, Other organizations um, have uh, reasonably strict standards. Um, News Corporation, by contrast, has a policy that says that journalists are enabled to write their news stories in such a way as to leave the audience in no doubt as to where the paper stands on a matter Mm -hmm. so they're encouraged to mix opinion with with news now um, when you mix opinion with news you're on a very slippery slope because your reader or your uh, your audience are in no position to sit down and fossic out uh, which is the fact and which is the opinion people taking stuff impressionistically so that is that is part of the problem that mingling of, of fact and, and opinion.
1: On that note, I was sort of wondering, um, in terms of this problem that you've um, diagnosed um, and the solutions, is there not, um, and I mean, I'm someone who in my work does call it out and call things as lies when I see them, because I have the freedom to do it in in an analytical role. But I suppose if we get to a point where uh, some media outlets are calling out lies and others are not, that... Do we risk sort of everyone retreating to their ideological corners and just reading the coverage that suits their particular ideology?
2: Well, I suppose that is a risk, but not to do it uh, is also a risk, isn't it? Now, I mean, you, you can call out lies and call them for what they are um, without breaching impartiality. I mean, if you were to take the mm. Dutton case, uh, as a matter of fact... His allegation about the electoral commission uh, was baseless, mm. and so it was. It would have been a truthful statement to say that Mr. Dutton has made a baseless allegation that the AEC is rigging the election or the referendum, um, and then provide the factual basis upon which. Uh, you've made that statement, because it is a matter of fact. Mm. It is not a failure of impartiality, it's it's a worse than failure, failure of impartiality, in my view, to treat it as if it's true, mm. uh, and then leave the audience to, um, or then leave the Electoral Commission to say, well, it's not true for the following reasons, which are the reasons I gave earlier, and then leave the audience to puzzle its way through to what it thinks is right if they get that far, because, as I say, people take information and impressionistically often doing something else. So the, the, it, it's it's part of impartiality to be accurate mm. and to, school that, to call that allegation basis is accurate and fair because it's a fair representation of the factual position. So the, these are, I think, misunderstandings in the media about what impartiality really means. Mm. Uh, and it certainly doesn't mean that you can't all something for what it really is.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I I noticed that in in the piece, you know, sort of we're talking about truth-telling and impartiality and the the media sort of has treated them like opposites when when really they're the same thing. If
2: you if you being yeah, think, genuinely impartial, you <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they have got. They have. I think a lot of mm-hmm. conscientious journalists have got themselves in a jam between mm-hmm. these two things, mm-hmm. quite unnecessarily. But it, as I say, it takes some time and some thinking to think your way through this. I've got the privilege now of sitting in the university, got plenty of time. <laughs> but journalists uh, in a newsroom haven't got that sort of time, and so uh, it does. It is going to take. I think. Um, quite a substantial effort on the part of editorial leaders, particularly newspaper editors and, uh, and television news directors and broadcasters, uh, to try to um, reconfigure their policies and how they actually implement these ideas of impartiality and truth-telling. And that's uh, quite a big job, I think, for them.
1: Yeah, yeah, huge. Um, I was wondering whether you noticed um, as the campaign wore on whether you felt like any media outlets were Taking note of this issue and and correcting course. I mean, I, I have my views on who, on different outlets that I thought started to started to do a little better near the end. But did you have a view on that?
2: Yes, I I've got a database of about seven hundred and seventy two articles that I that I read in preparation for this article, <laughs> and there were, and there were some, mm. um, and and some of the um, and and one particular example that I remember. Um, Uh, which had to do with um, Jacinta Price's uh, statement Mm. that um, uh, colonization had had been beneficial for Aboriginal people. Um, That was actually called out um, by a reporter from memory on one of the news corporation tabloids uh, who said... Um, that this basically flew, it was contradicted by mm-hmm. evidence had, that had come forward at a series of royal commissions and, of course, in the Closing the Gap data. Um, there was also some very good work done on, by the Hobart Mercury, another Murdoch paper, mm-hmm. as it happens. Uh, the Hobart Mercury was, I, I, I thought its coverage of the referendum was extremely fair. Yeah. Uh, and so there are pockets, but they are only pockets, and they tend to be among journalists who are writing. Long- Longer form pieces, so they've got a bit more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, who tend to be not the high profile commentators, but basically um, you know, down the line, straightforward reporters. Uh, so there are pockets of it, but overall, I think the, the problem is is not being tackled.
0: Mm. Which does, I guess, lead to the the let's let's say the practical part of your of your article, which is is it's not it's not merely a howl of despair which is good it, it has actually some you have some views on what what could be done some of the structural changes that could be made to improve this do you want to talk us through a bit of that
2: yeah well the first thing is don't indulge in disinformation of your own mm. um so um don't uh, for example uh, as a lot of news corporation papers did in this case um, say that the Uluru statement from the half is 20 pages or 20 plus pages when in fact it's one. Mm-hmm. Um, that the other pages were minutes or records of discussions leading up to the statement. That was outright disinformation that was actually promoted quite uh, vigorously by some sections of abuse corporation but then repudiated by others. Um, <laughs> um, so that's, I mean, the, so rule number one don't promote disinformation yourself. Secondly, um, ask yourself a few questions. I mean, firstly, um, do we need to run this at all? Well, clearly, if, if Dutton says that the Electoral Commission is rigging the election, of course you've got to run that because you've got a, a person in a position of authority saying something outrageous. Mm. You've got to run it. But you don't always have to run it. And if you do, well, how can we neutralise the lie right at the start, not leave it until Fourteenth paragraph of the story, where the electoral commission has yeah. to come in and explain itself. But get in at the same time. I think that could certainly be done. Um, and and thirdly, I think calling it out, as you were saying Rachel a minute ago, I think that where we see lies, we in the as journalists have got an obligation to call it for what it is and be pretty bold about it. Mm. Um, uh, so I think there are certainly three three things that we can do.
0: And I suppose, I mean, the, the, the question that immediately follows is, you know, how likely is that actually to occur? I mean, there's a bit of a sense if, if we look at, say, the experience of, say, Trump in, in the U.S., it took quite a lot of very bad things happening before the um, the media in that country really started to treat him as seriously as perhaps he ought to be. Um yeah, do we, do we think that it's going to require some kind of shock to the system of that sort over here? Or do you, do you have hope that it could actually be something that, over the course of the the debate, could actually improve?
2: Oh Lord, I would hope that we can learn from the American experience. I mean, um, as I remember being told as a child, learn from the mistakes of others. You haven't tried to make them all yourself. Um, so I, I think we should be learning from the... Um, from the American experience, I mean, uh, I, I think a, a very practical way of doing this would be have a have a column um, on page one of your paper called Whoppers, you know, which is a, a word for lies, and, and put them in. I mean, when there are obvious lies, put them in under a heading called Whoppers, and you'd have about half a dozen a day. And I, I think that kind of thing, I mean, it's a pretty light, entertaining way of doing it, but I think that would have a, a cautionary effect on people politicians wouldn't want to be found with their names in the whoppers column. Um, mm. And so I, I think there are simple sort of things you can do in addition to um, the kind of steps I've just been describing a minute ago, which are kind of, in a sense, more long run. Mm,
1: mm. I mean, I, they're, they're good, solid solutions. One one thing I'm wondering, um, and I and I pondered this a couple of times in the campaign, is whether there's actually even an appetite among a whole bunch of journalists in the mainstream media to fix this like I was struck by the fact that for so many of them it didn't really matter either way whether something was true or false because we are so in this mindset of treating politics as as a horse race and and as sort of like a gladiator sport I mean do you think do you think there's something wrong with the way we're teaching journalism that um a lot of journalists don't actually seem all that concerned by lies.
2: I think that's been true. I think it, it reached its zenith probably in about 2015 or so, I think. Mm. But I think now we've reached, I think journalists in the mainstream media have reached the realisation, which I should have come to a long time ago, that they only have one thing to sell. There's only one thing to differentiate them from the sludge that sluices about on social media, mm. and that is trust. Hmm. reliability and and the serious media are finally getting their heads around this Um, and I think it's all part of the same problem but if you are going to not care ab- about this kind of thing in the uh, in the hope that it will generate some eyeballs or some clicks then you are signing a death warrant for yourself and I think that this finally is getting through to certainly the more responsible elements in the media it's got through to the Americans uh, as a direct consequence of their experience of Donald Trump I would hope that we don't need to Lag behind uh, and, in a sense, wait for our own Trump experience uh, before we wake up to the same thing. There's a huge effort now going into fact checking um, and to um, and to trying to hold people to account for uh, for false information. Uh, I, again, I think it comes back to editorial leadership. Um, mm. if, if editors understand that this is a life and death problem for them which I think it is, yeah. then uh, I think they will address it with a good deal of urgency. But uh, against that, you've got this, as I say, this day-to-day rush to get the get the program to wear or get the paper out, and not enough, um, I think not enough resources, not enough mental energy goes into trying to resolve this existential problem, I think. Mm.
0: Well, it's it's I mean, I think you, we probably can't really improve on that. It is um, it is an imperishable question for for people who, who care about proper public interest journalism in this country. And it's something that I'm I'm sure we will return to periodically. I mean, we have no choice but to do it. Um uh, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us. Um, as always, it's such a fascinating um, uh, chat to have with you. Uh, everyone check out his piece uh, on the coverage of The Voice uh, on The Conversation. Um, but we'll let you go now, and thank you again so much for, for joining us.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks thank you so much. So
0: much. What a great chat that was, as always. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, he he is a, a friend of the show for for a good reason. Um, you had a few more things though. I think you wanted to talk about with the voice.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. well, just just while we were off air, um, I think there was there was one part of uh, Dr. Muller's article that we didn't get a chance to touch on, which was this idea of balance. Um, yes, and this idea in the media that if you speak to um, uh, you know, one side you have to speak to the other mm-hmm. and you can't report on a yes thing unless you report on a no thing and, and vice versa. Um, and there was a very interesting piece um, on the weekend. Um, obviously, I think this this conversation about balance has been floating around a lot in terms of the ABC. Oh, yes. As yes. the public broadcaster. Um, and there were some comments that... Chief Political Correspondent Laura Tingle made at mm-hmm. a book launch for David Marr's new book, um, in which she she sort of she said I shouldn't be saying this, but um, <laughs> she basically always... called the the policy of having to make sure they gave both sides equal time nuts. Like she, th- these were her words. Yeah, wow. I mean, she she said that that the ABC had had failed the public by with its wow. um, need for balance. Um, and she also revealed they have this thing called the internal ABC voice tracker, a form they have to fill in every time they do a story about the referendum that says, here are the people we've spoken to, here are the number of minutes the Yes campaign got, here are the number of minutes the No cases got. got. Wow. And, you know, I feel like the ABC does have to have these kind of things because they are so heavily scrutinised. Yeah, um, and I, and they-
0: I, I believe it's a legislative requirement in all of these cases that they do... Literally, minute for minute, as much as they can. The, yeah. It's The same with the marriage equality debate; they had to have because that Lyle be Shelton on television. They'll be because, biased, yeah, Otherwise,
1: yeah. But, but but
0: also, I believe it is part of their charter. Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Which well, again is, it, well, maybe maybe it's time to have a look at well, the I was ABC say it, charter. It, perhaps
0: that does show that there's there are elements in which that is unworkable because. Um, but it's a funny one because I suppose with the yes no debate, there was there were a lot of different strands informing both positions and you could you could have good faith no campaigners they on. could have had
1: Lydia Thorpe on a bit more yes for exactly
0: exactly people, uh, and people who would have argued at it from a very different point of view and and a more i mean again this this is a, uh, a this is not this is subjective take but you know from perhaps a more good faith point of view than than some of those i, <laughs> I think we can i way. think we
1: can objectively say that people can, yeah. Were yeah, arguing i actually in feel bad like
0: i just completely drag myself into one of the (laughs) cul-de-sacs that we were just talking about. about.
1: (laughs) No, it's difficult. It's difficult. But um, yeah, I think think it's interesting that um, these conversations are going on inside the ABC. um, And, you know, whether whether this is going to result in any kind of change I mean mm. no matter what the ABC does they're yeah. accused of having a left-leaning bias by mm. the coalition um, you know they get dragged for Senate estimates and their tweets are combed through and um, but you know as we just heard from Dr. Muller you know weighting both sides equally is sometimes actually not truthful it's not yeah. it's not impartial it's not it's not doing mm. the public. A service if one side is just like absolute nonsense and far fetched yeah. conspiracies and yeah, um,
0: I mean the, the the famous example of that and the one that's the easiest to demonstrate is the argument that uh, people who believe climate change is happening mm-hmm. ought to be counteracted with people who don't and that 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 does not reflect. The uh, This may be an old figure, but the 97% was the one that was always used. 90% of scientists agree that it is happening. Yeah. Why do you have to have 50% of your time dedicated to 3% of the argument?
1: And, and I think that stat's been floating around a while, and mm. it's, it's a solid argument um, because we had so many years of both sides in yeah. climate change. But I suppose with things like The Voice, there there's less of a scientific yeah, yeah. um you know, consensus that we can point to. I mean, I think I think with The Voice, media outlets could have spent more time pointing to the fact that, you know, the overwhelming majority of, of experts in health and mm-hmm. education, um, you know, every, every field, legal experts, the overwhelming majority said this is a good idea, this will help, um, this is not legally risky. And yet, yeah, we still had, you know all outlets uh, not just singling out the abc here but all outlets um giving equal weighting to um you know arguments that the voice were legally risky and arguments that the voice was safe from politicians and yeah, we had legal yeah. experts for that
0: yeah and 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 obviously the uh the 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 real clangor, the 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 real trumpian moment the uh i mean and and to be fair most outlets did at least try to immediately counteract the idea that the ac was mm-hmm. um was in any way biased in one way or another, but it. But you felt again, it could have. It could have been. In, I mean, I, I did a piece uh, in the, in the days leading up to the, the vote about like the the debate in five misleading headlines, mm, and mm-hmm. it's like that was one of them. Where it's like, well, if you don't say in the very headline, this is baseless. There is nothing to this. It's you can't just report it as though it's something that someone prominent said. Um,
1: yeah, which we do see a bit of things just yeah. get turned into headlines and even if they call it out in the first line. Um, I think there was one that was like a particular woman in the No campaign.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, her surname was White and she was a One Nation candidate. K- Karen White. Karen yeah, She White. was a, a One
0: Nation, not, not, not a high profile figure, yeah. just a fringe figure. And, and, I, and I'm, not, I always, I'm always sort of um, very keen to point out that I think actually the journalists who wrote that story did other very good work mm. and were acting in good faith. I don't think they were intending at all to do a misleading story, but... Why is that a why the, the headline quotation marks uh whites will have to pay to stay here says no campaigner.
1: I thought, oh no, I think it was like voice will lead to reparations. Voice, well, that's right. That's right. colon, well, yeah. White. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes.
0: Um and then you, you and then, you know, nine points nine nine paragraphs down you say, well there's nothing actually she she provides no evidence to yeah. back this up. You sort of are doing a readers a bit of a disservice because as 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 um Dennis said, it's the, 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 most people don't comb through stories no. with the same kind of intensity that and, you and I do. And, and something
1: yeah. like that is, is I think we can safely say, objectively false. And that one yeah. should be uh, not only easy to call out, uh, but very important not to put in the headline.
0: Po- and p- possibly not necessary. To, I, to I, I report don't, it all. I don't know. I, genuinely don't know. I don't know what kind of audience she was reaching without the mainstream media's mm. intervention. I, I genuinely don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, been a, a, a more bad news, yes. I guess, for the, um, the ABC. <laughs> God, we really have. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about, isn't there? Um, I, I mean, I thought it was interesting to note um, this week we had the this, the final the finalising of the uh, Heston Russell uh, defamation trial mm. against the ABC, uh, which is a really interesting one. It basically, it's basically the it,
1: first time we've seen a, a recently a big defamation trial that's gone against the media. Yeah, well, yeah. Of course, I had a what? lot of victories for the media recently or, or people uh, withdrawing.
0: <laughs> yeah, which, are. Is, which is, I've got to say, a very, very keen distinction that we ought to draw. Yes. Is that there's a big difference between someone withdrawing their case and for losing. one reason or another yeah. and, 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 and someone losing their yeah. defamation case. I,
1: but the, I did the, note that this was one of the, the sort of first pieces of um, – of, of, Bad defamation, you know while. I mean? You know, it's it, the, out, the outcome is the only. Reason. I'll let you explain the, the case.
0: Yeah, well, it's inter- I mean, it's an interesting one because I, I, the, the other thing is, is that I think we can let the the Ben Robert Smith, the um, the what's the one I'm looking for here? How huge, how seismic a decision that really was? Mm. That has dominated, and rightly so, dominated a lot of coverage of defamation mm-hmm. law, but. It's it's it is one case after all, and it does. That's true. It People does, are out there losing yeah. all
1: the time, yeah. and,
0: and that um, <laughs> that does that did require one of the you know one of the most assiduous and um, years and years and years of 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 sort of accumulation of material and mm. years and years defending it in court to be able mm. to to get that result. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't necessarily reach for that as like, well, that's now how defamation works in Australia. <laughs> so We're, good.
1: Now the truth will prevail. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Everything's changed now. Um, <laughs> it's still I mean, well, I mean, and to be fair, also uh, the Heston Russell uh, claim, which is basically from ABC reporting regarding um, alleged war crimes in Afghanistan as well. a squadron leader of, of a team that was alleged to have uh, shot civilians. Um the, the, the way that the fact that this didn't go in favor of the me, of, of the of the publisher at the time doesn't necessarily mean that everything's reverting back to the way it once was i think what makes this particularly um significant though is that this is the first test of the um public interest Defence that was inserted into defamation law in 2021, I believe it was. Um, this is the first time it's kind of gotten to the end of a trial of that sort, and the defence didn't work. And mm. that's that's the that's 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 interesting to note there is now a precedent in terms of um, of both the public interest and also the um, the subjective belief in that public interest. So the idea that a journalist truly subjectively believed that the reporting they did was in the public interest that is now a, a category that they're supposed to take into account when deciding these things they did take that into account they found that they believed that the journalists in question were acting in in terms you know according to their they believed their genuine the belief interest. that it was in the public interest and that 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 wasn't enough in the end so 400 grand is now going well, to Well what was
1: uh, what was interesting to me is is uh, and unfortunately my laptop has just died but um <laughs> uh, I noted that the public interest offence is that you have to reasonably believe your yes. reporting is yes. the public interest. Yeah. And the judge found that the ABC reporter, um, like, as you said, did genuinely mm. believe that their reporting was in the public interest, but the judge found that belief wasn't reasonable. They and I'm like, now we've got this a- reasonable person test going on Yeah, here. like, who is... Yeah, the, the assessment of whether or not a journalist's belief is reasonable. The
0: the, the amount of times that, that the word that 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 the yeah the judgment of a reasonable person is what the the mm. criteria is for a lot of lot of laws, um, around privacy and employment law and 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 defamation law is actually incredibly common. Yeah. and you're right, it does leave it, it's. A, hugely at the mercy of, of the, the interpretation of a particular charge
1: Absolutely. And I mean, imagine being the person who, who has been found to genuinely believe something but was not a reasonable person. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, Mark Willis, he's I think he's pretty thick-skinned. He'll probably, <laughs> <laughs> probably be okay. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform.
1: And you can follow us on Twitter, at Naj Sambel, at Lily Juice,
0: and at The Shuffle Diary.
1: You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via on demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and
0: create great radio and podcast content like this.